This podcast was recorded on the lands of the Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. The land on which I am lucky enough to raise my son always was and always will be Aboriginal land. This episode of Ready or Not is brought to you by Biobod, intuitive, supportive skincare that restores the foundations of happy skin. I grew up not liking myself very much. My girls are IVF babies. So I already felt that I had failed the first hurdle of womanhood. No one has on their CV whether or not they were breastfed. And after 200 rejections, I got a publishing deal and I've now been read over 10 million times. The day of my 20 week scan was the day I was made redundant. We teach boys not to be kind and not to help. We are setting our girls up to fail at the thing that we have taught them everyone cares about. Author and mother of two, Casey Edwards, didn't like herself all that much growing up. So when she gave birth to her first daughter, she made it her mission to learn how to. In her corporate life, she'd long ago worked out the relationship between hard work and success. So motherhood, where hard work doesn't always lead to reward, somewhat rocked her. IVF made her feel like she'd already failed at womanhood, and her birth and breastfeeding journey further cemented this notion that she had concocted for herself, that she was far from the good mother she set out to be. Here, she talks spending a decade climbing the corporate ladder only to realise one morning that she didn't really want to work anymore, switching gears from management consulting to becoming an internationally best-selling author, and how exactly we raise girls and boys to like themselves. This, my friends, is an absolute beauty, so let's get into it. I'm Lucinda, this is Ready or Not, And here is the ridiculously clever and courageous Casey Edwards. Casey, it was when you arrived home from the hospital with your daughter that the sheer responsibility that was ahead of you weighed on you. Can you tell us about that moment and what you remember? I remember feeling totally unprepared. So much so that I couldn't believe someone allowed us to leave the hospital. I remember our, my husband and I, we looked at each other and what, thought, who is in charge here? Like, how could we be given such a responsibility? Because we were so hopeless before we left the hospital. We were both reading the box of the nappies to find out how to put them on. And nappy boxes don't have instructions. I actually remember changing a nappy in the nursery and being like, God, I hope no one's watching because I hope I'm doing it right <laughs> about my own child. <laughs> well, if I don't know that. What else don't I know? But I remember this over overwhelming feeling of what I wanted for my daughter that I, I didn't know how to give her. And so there were many things, you know, I mean, many parents feel totally overwhelmed at that moment. But what I really felt was I didn't know how to raise my daughter to like herself because I grew up not liking myself very much. And I felt like I should have liked myself because I had all the things in life that was supposed to make you like yourself. And I grew up with this really deep sense of inadequacy of never feeling good enough. And that was my biggest goal for my daughter. I wanted her to not feel like that. I wanted her to grow up feeling good enough. And I didn't know how to give that to her. 
And so that's what started the journey, the research journey for my husband, Dr. Kristen Scanlon, and me to ending up writing our books on raising girls to like themselves and bringing up boys to like themselves was we wanted to find that out for ourselves so we could do it for our own daughter because it was so clear to me that if I parented my daughter the way I was parented, then the outcome was going to be the same and most likely she would grow up feeling a sense of inadequacy too. So that was the focus. And did that stop you in pregnancy or was birth a sort of a big moment where like a light bulb moment where all of a sudden you're like, oh, oh my God. I need to teach her all these things. So in pregnancy, I was just surviving. Um, It was a a difficult pregnancy. I was sick a lot. And also I was totally invested in doing pregnancy, birth and breastfeeding the right way. And so to start off with, my girls are IVF babies. So I already felt that I had failed the first hurdle of womanhood. I couldn't get pregnant naturally. And I didn't realize what a burden that was to me until the next thing happened, that I had a horrific pregnancy where I was vomiting all the time and I hated every minute of it and there was no no glowing pregnant woman here. And so then that happened. And then I had read all the research about a natural birth and I was so sure that that's what I was going to do and I was prepared. And then I ended up having an epidural and an emergency cesarean. And then I was going to breastfeed. And again, I was so, so invested in doing that right. And I couldn't. I tried so hard spent an absolute fortune on lactation consultants. I was pumping every hour for almost a year. And I had, I feel like crying just talking about it. I had- Oh, that hurts my soul. That's a lot. Mastitis, I had nipple thrush. And I remember I was taking tablets that were $70 a day. And I was made redundant when I was pregnant. So I had no job to go back to. And I was popping these pills that I couldn't afford, trying to make milk that I couldn't make trying to do motherhood the right way and it was and I couldn't and then at 11 months both my daughter and I ended up in hospital and it was so it was such a traumatic experience those first few months and I look back now and I did that to myself because I was so invested in being the right kind of mother and when I think back at those months I actually feel really sad now that I wasted that time feeling like I was failing when I had to feed my daughter Violet, my body would almost repel her. And I remember thinking, oh my God. So another thing I'd failed at, right? I didn't want my daughter near me because it caused me so much pain and distress. So I'd failed at that hurdle too. And so then it took me five years to go back to have another baby. For a couple of reasons. It's almost like your motherhood experience exacerbated what you then explored through your work of these gendered norms of like, this is what a good mother is. That's right. And it's it comes from everywhere. And I really think that the pregnancy, birthing and breastfeeding industry needs to have a look at itself because it almost broke me. And the thing about being a good mother is you can't do what's right for your child if you are broken yourself. And there's this real 
ethos around mothering is that she who does it toughest wins, right? It's all about, you know, can't you just put up with this for a year? If you love your baby, you'll do that. And it was like, well, what about me? You know, when I wasn't looking after me, I couldn't look after my baby. And I really think we need to start putting mothers back into the focus of raising babies. And so you say that you didn't grow up necessarily liking yourself. When did that journey to change your mindset about yourself change? Did that come pre-pregnancy or is this a postpartum thing? No, no. So, I mean, like so many things about being a woman is you do it for someone else, don't you? You know, we're almost not allowed to prioritize ourselves and our own development. You know, how many stories do you hear about, you know, I I went on a health kick for my kids. You know, yeah, I did this yeah. for my kids. Um, and so what I did was I learned how to like myself for my daughter. So what I did was I the research was what do I need to do? What beliefs do does she need to not learn? What strategies do I need to teach her so she could grow up liking herself? And in the process of doing that, I unlearned that myself. And then at I was able and middle-aged to finally learn to like myself. And I tell you, life is so much easier when you like yourself, right? And we can all do that if we unlearn that baggage and the, the beliefs that are put onto us. Because this, like we just said about motherhood, we're given these rules and we're told that the more you follow these rules, the harder you try, the more you're going to like yourself, the more you're going to get the reward. We think that they're ladders to success, but they're actually snakes. And the harder we try to climb, the further we fall. And it's not until we actually reject that baggage that we can actually reach our goal of liking ourselves. And when we're happier, more fulfilled people, we become more happier, fulfilled mothers. And so my second daughter, Ivy, came five years later. And by that stage, I'd grown up a lot. I'd st done a lot of the research for the book already. And I realized that I can't be the mother she needs if there's nothing left of me. And so I booked in for my elective cesarean because I was like, I'm not going to do that again. And yes, I tried to breastfeed and I didn't. Like she got a little bit of milk for the first four months. And then a nurse said to me, well, do you want to breastfeed or do you want her to sleep? And at that point I said, well, let's sleep. And now my daughters are nine and 14, and I look back at the things that I worried about. No one has on their CV whether or not they were breastfed. No one has Very on their good CV point. <laughs> whether or not they had a dummy, what age they were toilet trained. There are so many things that we worry so much about, and that really impacts our joy of being mothers that just doesn't matter. I've read and heard a lot where you've talked about external measures of what makes us good and what makes us loved and what makes us lovable. And I'm now almost drawing a correlation. When you're pregnant, you're hoping that your baby measures the way the baby's meant to measure. You're hoping to fall pregnant just to begin with. Then you're hoping to have the best birth possible. Then you're hoping your baby gains the right amount of grams each week. It's almost like we're primed to keep looking for external validation that we're doing a good job instead of focusing inward. That's right. And we're told that there's one right way. There's an expert who wrote a chart, you know, <laughs> and, you yeah. know when you look at some of 
these charts. Like, let's take BMI, for example. That chart was written by a guy in the insurance industry in America who was profit-driven. He was a mathematician, right? And then suddenly it becomes something that we, I remember old, getting on yeah. the scales as a pregnant woman and, oh, I've put on too much weight. And what, because some bloke on the other side of the world was going to get a bonus if he, you know, put some numbers down on a piece of paper. It's really hard not to absorb that pressure. And part of the journey to liking yourself is developing what we call a power perspective. And that is the idea that you get to decide if you're okay. You live by your own standards, not constantly striving to tick these external boxes, to get other people to validate you, to pat you on the back and tell you that you're being a good mother. And that essentially was what I was after. I was I was wanting that validation to do motherhood right. And I ended up really doing it wrongly. Oh, there's so much to unpack. I feel like I could have a five-hour conversation with you. But now we've, we're going to get deeper into this. But I want you to take me back to the start, to your life pre-children. What did your career and climbing the corporate ladder look like pre-kids? Okay, so I was a management consultant. I was extremely ambitious. I was climbing that ladder so fast and that that was my life. I remember saying with pride, I don't have a job, I have a career. You know, it was it was my whole identity and my worth. And I wasn't thinking about kids at all. And then one day in my early 30s, I woke up and realized that I didn't want to go to work ever again. Not just on that day. I didn't want to go. I realized that everything that I was doing at work was meaningless to me. Did anything happen to cause that catalyst or you just had that feeling? I did not see it coming. Wow. And I went from being so motivated to realizing, and it's crazy, I was early 30s and I realized the first time in my life that I was working for money. Yeah. Because up until that point, I was working for status and success and promotion. You know, I, and then when I realized, oh my God, I have to work for money. I don't like it. And I've got all these years left. What am I going to do? And that's when I started to really look at what made me feel like this. Why do I feel so meaningless? And I, what I called it was I'd lost my give a shit. I'd lost my reason to get out of bed. I lost my reason to care. And so that started a research journey for me. It lasted about a year when I looked into why I'd lost my give a shit and what I needed to do to find it again. And the conclusion that I came to was that I was following someone else's path that I had not made a decision for myself since I picked my high school subjects. Every other thing after that was what was supposed to happen, what good girls were supposed to do. Yeah. The marks. So then I went to uni. I did the course people told me to do, got the job people told me to do, got the next promotion, got the next promotion, got the next promotion. And I woke up and thought, how did I get here? Like I never actually chose that. And I realized that I didn't have anything to believe in. There was nothing bigger than myself that I cared about. And that is just a recipe for meaninglessness in life. And so I started writing that down. And that turned into my very first book, which was called 30 Something and Over It, What Happens When You Wake Up and Don't Want to Go to Work Ever Again. And that book ended up changing my life. And so how did you get published? You went from management consulting to a book. How does that happen? Yeah. Okay. So I changed jobs to work part-time and I really had to change my life because like a lot of people who were, who earn big money, they spend big money. And I had no savings. I had debt. 
um, because I was also medicating my discontent. Like I didn't know that my life was meaningless. So I just bought expensive things and I'd go out with my, you know, consulting friends to expensive restaurants and not look at the prices on the menu and things like that. And so I did not have this life set up to be able to work part-time, but I knew that I needed to do something. So yeah, I really made some changes in my life so I could afford it. And I do realize that that is a privilege that a lot of people cannot make that choice. Um, but I really cut that back to bare minimum and I went to working four days a week so that I could have one day a week to research and write. And then when I wrote the book, I then tried to get it published and every single publisher and agent in Australia said no. How did that sit, given that you were so goal-oriented to that point, obviously? Yeah, that was gutting. In fact, one of the most famous, influential agents in Australia Actually, she sent me a personalized letter and she said, I have no confidence in your ability to write. Oh. So not only did she think that 30 something and over it was no good, she thought I couldn't write anything at all. Oh. But my my husband, actually he was my boyfriend at the time, Chris, he said, there are hundreds of agents, thousands in the English speaking world. And until you've tried all of them, you're not finished. So I then started querying agents in America and the UK. And after 200 rejections, I got a publishing deal in the UK. Then once that was successful, I then got a publishing deal in Australia. And that book went on to be an international bestseller. And I've now been read over 10 million times. Wow. Isn't that a lesson for believing yourself oh. and liking yourself? What if I'd stopped? At my second rejection, what if I'd stopped at my 199th rejection? Like, I think about what my life would be like now if I hadn't just kept trying. That's incredible. And so what happened was that was certainly a crash course in dealing with criticism, um, which then feeds into Raising Girls Who Like Themselves and our boys' book as well. And actually on the first day that the book was published, I, I got a, review, a letter from a, a, um, a reader and I was so excited to read this email from a real person that I didn't know who'd read my book. And I opened the email and it said, the best thing I can say about your book is that it's expensive toilet paper. And that was the beginning. Like since then, every single week I receive criticism. And some of it's like that. A lot of it's hate mail. A lot of it's very personal about the way I look, that I'm ugly, I'm fat, I'm and people get very offended about sort of anything to do with embracing different genders. And I yes. listened in a podcast where it was like, a, my boy shouldn't be swinging next to another boy or my boy shouldn't be dressed up in a tutu. So I'm sure you get a lot of that I too. get a lot of that. Yeah. But anyway, so that was a really uh, important lesson to me about just because someone criticizes you doesn't mean you have to listen to them. You actually have a choice, you know, back to the power perspective. I get to choose whose opinions I listen to and what I believe. Is that an active thing? I imagine that you can you never you never master that, right? You're cons you're making a conscious de decision every day to believe yourself. An example of how it works. So, actually, when Raising Girls was published, the first day it was published, Ray Hadley went on radio and told everyone that it was rubbish. I was a joke, and people shouldn't buy it. Now, my first thought was, oh my gosh, how embarrassing. 
maybe I am a fraud. And then I thought, hang on a minute. Do I trust Ray Hadley? Would I go to him to parenting it for parenting advice? Do I care what that man says about me? And of course, the answer to those things are no. So it was like, why would I give him my power? Why would I let him ruin my day? So that's the second thought. And that's the one that you can train yourself to have. And with practice, it gets a lot easier. And then it was like, no, he can talk to the hand. This is the publishing day of my book and I'm not going to let him ruin it. And so then I had a good day. I'll just give you an example of how we teach our children the power perspective because we're not born with it. And in fact, a lot of the way that we are raised, we actually learn the opposite. We actually train our kids that other people get to decide if they're okay. We train them to care about what other people think. So we, we do need to instill the lessons of the power perspective in them. And so, for example, Violet, my oldest daughter, she was quite young, five or six, and she was coming home from her birthday party. And um, she was unwrapping her presents and Ivy, her younger sister, was helping her and she broke Violet's present. So, of course, Violet was upset. That was her first thought. Her first impulse was anger, frustration, disappointment over the broken toy. And that's perfectly normal and perfectly legitimate. And then once she calmed down and we gave her a cuddle and said, yeah, that's really disappointing. And at that point, because we'd done all this research, we did not go into rescue. Because as a parent, you would go, don't worry, honey, I'll buy you another My Little Pony, right? I'm already on the way. <laughs> exactly. That's what you feel like doing. But we know that that doesn't build resilience because things happen in life and your child has to need to know, has to learn through their own experience that they can handle it. And when you rush in and fix it, you're telling them they can't handle it, right? So we said to her, this is really disappointing and you can't change that. You've got no power over that but you do get to choose how you're going to think about that. And you can focus on that broken toy and you can feel upset and frustrated for the rest of the day, or you can choose to think about all the good things that happened today, your party, all the people who came who love you, all your other presents, and you can have a fun day. You get to choose that. So powerful. And so that's just one example of many that we can teach our kids and then that just becomes their default way of thinking. And something you said I found quite interesting. I'm wondering if there's a correlation, but there might not be. So you said that when you were climbing the corporate ladder, you really weren't thinking about kids. Something that happens to a lot of people, and maybe this wasn't the case for you in their early 30s, is they start going, shit, I'm 30. I know that I have a clock. I know it's I know it's bloody ticking because everyone's going to tell me that it is. <laughs> but I'm also experiencing perhaps a pretty upward-facing career trajectory. Did your all of a sudden realization that you weren't finding meaning in your work come from the idea of kids starting to germinate in your mind or were they totally separate things? <laughs> Look, certainly not consciously. So what happened for me is I went to have a pap smear and I could have gone to a GP, but I decided to go to my gynecologist and I'm very glad I did because when I was there, she said, while I'm here, let me just check your ovaries. And she did. And she found out that uh, one, because of endometriosis, just wasn't there anymore. And the second was polycystic. And she said, you might be infertile already, but best case scenario, you've got 12 months. And I was 32. And had you even started thinking about children then? 
not had not even considered it. If anyone had asked me if I wanted kids before that day, I would have said no. But then I tell you, once someone tells you you can't have them, oh my goodness, did I want kids? And that was the day that Chris had moved into my apartment. My boyfriend had moved in. So I went home and had that conversation. And I was just so lucky that I was dating someone that was father material and that it was actually a conversation that we could have. Yeah. And so then we began the IVF journey. And so where was your career at that point? Were you already writing your first book? Yes, I was. And how did you navigate that alongside your fertility journey? Did you find that challenging or did it happen? Yeah, it was because I was sick. But then also what happened, which happens to so many women, the day of my 20-week scan was the day I was made redundant. Throughout my pregnancies, I've noticed dramatic differences in my skin. And I'm also far more aware of the ingredients in the products that I use on my face. Q Biobod, a skincare brand created for the most sensitive and reactive skin, with formulas that are fragrance-free, toxin-free, and predominantly plant-derived. From their award-winning Barrier Restore Nutrient Oil, through to their replenishing HydraSooth Serum, all products are designed to be gentle on the skin while delivering effective results, making them ideal for skin during and post-pregnancy. Natalie, the founder behind BioBot, is so sure you'll love these products that she's implemented a 100% happiness guarantee. So if BioBot products don't work for your skin, they'll refund you. I've been using BioBot for a few months now and it's a big tick from me. Listeners of Ready or Not will receive 20% off using code READY20. That's READY20. So what happened next? So then I was unemployed. So, so yeah, so I didn't have a job to go back to and that was scary. Um, and it was before my book had taken off. So I didn't actually know that I, I had another career waiting for me. But as I said, I was also really sick and I just got sicker through my pregnancy. So it would have been difficult to keep working anyway, but yeah, it's it's not uncommon, is it, for women to be made redundant when they're pregnant? It's Half my mother's group common. were made redundant, and it's like, and a lot of people aren't allowed to talk about yep. it because of contracts, which makes it even more challenging. So then you're doing this self work. How's your self talk at this point? You've been made redundant. You're trying to fumble your way through a really difficult pregnancy, and I guess you don't know what returning to work is even going to look like on the other side. Yeah, I was scared. And I think that led into the crisis that I had after my daughter was born. I I didn't know who I was. I didn't know how I was going to cope. And I felt like I was for someone who had worked out the relationship between hard work and success. In my life, if I worked hard, I got what I wanted. Not always exactly what I wanted, but I got further towards it. And this was the first time in my life where I just felt like I was experiencing failure after failure. Do you think because you were made redundant and perhaps I might be putting words in your mouth so you can tell me if I am, but perhaps motherhood became like the role for a period of time because there was no other role at that time. Do you think that put even more pressure on yourself to do it? What we put in inverted commas as right? Yeah, look, I think I had that drive and I was to a total sucker for the culture of doing motherhood right anyway. 
but there was nothing else to fill that void. So yeah, I totally absorbed that identity of being the right kind of mother and then failed at every hurdle of being the right kind of mother. And so when does work start to creep back in the picture for you? How old is your daughter Violet at that stage? When she was one, I started working just a few hours in the mo- in a couple of mornings a week. Um, my husband would go into work late and I would work. And because something else that I had absorbed, which now I just think is, was just total nonsense, was a rejection of childcare. So I got from my mother, you know, childcare is child abuse. You're not going to dump your child at childcare, are you? And I totally absorbed that as well. And I re- remember, like, I d- didn't put my daughter's name down at places. And then I was sure that I had to do everything myself because that's what a good mother does. And at that point, I hadn't realized that childcare, early years education, is education. And the gift that those childcare workers and early years educators give to children is just priceless. It was, in my mind, it was like, you know, I was dumping them in in a cattle yard and I'd just keep them alive until I came back and got them, which is such an insult to the industry. It was such ignorance, but also it was terrible for me because we had no family around. My mum's in the UK. So she gave me her opinions from a distance where she didn't have to lift a finger. (laughs) So I did everything myself with no help. And I would have done that until um, when Violet was two and a half, I got a a call from a childcare centre and Violet had got in and my friend who was in mother's group, her daughter had also just got in and, and she said, why don't you just try it? And I did. And it just, it was such a wonderful experience for the whole family, including Violet. I couldn't possibly have given her all those amazing experiences. Now, I'm not saying that childcare is better than staying at home, but in my family, childcare was better than what I could give Violet by just me staying at home. And you do forget, you do quickly go into that guilt space of, I'm just doing this so that I can do something else, where it's, as you say, it's actually a gift to our children. Yes. It took me a little while to realise that. I was always embracing of childcare and my son was always going, but you do all of a sudden one day realise when you pick them up, oh, this is a gift for you too. It's not just for me. Yes. But the other thing in that thinking, and we all think like that, a gift for you is a gift for them. Yes. Right? You can't be the best mother you can be if you're empty. No. Right? Oh, you can't. We have to fill our own buckets. Um, but also the, the independence, the creativity that, that my girls got at childcare. And the research bears that out. Early years education is, is so important. And I just think it is such a terrible burden we place on mothers by making them feel guilty. And also making it all on them too. You know, how many dads sit there and go, oh, I feel so bad about going back to work and my child. Yeah, we feel like it's replacing us, not replacing parenting as a as a whole. It's like, oh, this is replacing the mother. I could not agree more. There's a few times where I've thought, just think like my husband. He went back to work after a few weeks after our baby was born. He's not thinking, oh, it's so bad that I'm working. I should be with him. So I try to keep that mindset as well. So Violet's starting daycare at about two and a half. Two and a half, yep. Are you... An author from here on in, is there a bit of work on the side? What what happens next? Yeah, at that stage, I start writing my second book. 
which is um, 30 something and the clock is ticking. And that's that experience of deciding whether or not motherhood is a good deal. Cause it's not really, when you look at it as a business case, it's a terrible deal, right? It's like, what? And it was like, why do we do it? And then people, we go back and do it again. Um, so I wrote that book and then I started writing a column for daily life, a weekly column. And how did you find navigating paid work and parenting at that time? Was it, I imagine perhaps if it was two and a half years in and you'd battled these ideas that childcare wasn't a good thing and then you realised that it was and you were loving it, I imagine it must have felt quite freeing to then have this time to yourself. Absolutely. And I became, I found myself again. I was broken. So I still walk past the mother's group room where I went with Violet and I cry. It was 14 years ago. And I look back, it was it was trauma to lose myself in, in those years. And I needed I needed to rebuild myself. And that's what I did when I started working again, started having my own income. So even though in our family, I actually managed all the finances because <laughs> being the management consultant, not actually earning the money was a really big burden for me, even though it was never a, an issue in real terms. And I know a lot of women, it is. They feel like they can't spend money and they need to ask permission to have access. I never had that but I still felt like I wasn't entitled to spend money, that I didn't have equal power in the relationship. So for me, yeah, I really needed to earn my own money again as well. And Ivy, you said, comes some five years later. What's the personal work that you needed to do between first daughter and second daughter to, I guess, feel ready potentially to have another child? Yes. So... A couple of things needed to happen. The first one is I needed to be prepared for it not to work. And I think that that was one of the reasons I put it off, that it was, we were so lucky to get Violet the first time around. I just didn't think that it was going to work the second time around. But Ivy, by that stage, had been in the freezer for five years. And Chris said, let's just put it in. Let's just Isn't see. Isn't that incredible to think? I know. And we talk quite openly about our family. And when we'll talk about something in the past and Ivy will go, was that when I was in the freezer? It was like, yes. <laughs> so I think maybe she thinks she was like next to the peas or something. Oh, that's so good. You had a blanket around you. Don't worry. We looked <laughs> after you in there. <laughs> um, and I, yeah, so I had to be prepared for it not working. So that took some time, but I also needed to decide to be a different kind of mother. By that, I mean, I needed to prioritize myself in the equation as well. And and even though when I say it, I'm actually doing it for my daughter because she can't have the best mother if I'm broken again. And I also had Violet who needed me. I couldn't fall apart the way I did last Yeah, time. that's true. You're dividing yourself this time. That's right. So six weeks after Ivy was born, I hired a nanny just for a few hours a week so I could go to the gym. Have, and sometimes I just sit in a cafe and read a book. And again, I do understand that that is a huge privilege, but it's one that even when women could take it, they often don't because they, they feel like they're not entitled to that. And so even just hearing that I'm preparing for my second 
postpartum now and I'm like, oh, on one of my son's daycare days, I could perhaps get one of the nanas around for a few hours, one day a week to actually have some time for myself. Did not cross my mind until now. Right. Because we need it. Like relaxation is not something we should have to earn. It's something that we need. That's so true. We don't have to justify it. We just have to take it. And so I'm now seeing such a huge correlation between your work in how we raise boys and girls and also the value that we place on ourselves as mothers and as people in a society that's sort of, I guess, wired by productivity. Is it a forever work in progress of you finding value in motherhood as well as in your paid work? Even you saying, obviously, your husband put no financial stress on you of you need to earn this money if you want to buy a pair of jeans or whatever. Yeah. But I guess you still felt that. So it's one of those things that it's so ingrained in us that it's like we're always trying to find the value within what we do if we're not being paid for it. Yeah, and it's it's insane, isn't it? And especially like I'm a, I'm a researcher. Like I've read all that research. <laughs> I've seen all those numbers. I know what unpaid work means to the economy and to families and to our partners' careers. But still, it is so deeply ingrained in the female experience that it is something we must do. It's not valued. And we must content ourselves with the scraps. And no one is going to fix that for us. So I actually have a friend who is actually one of the characters in my very first book, 30-something and over it. And she's my best friend and we're very different. So I'll call her Emma because that's the, the name I use in the book. And she approached motherhood completely different. She just does not absorb those cultural messages. So when she was going to be home, not work, not being paid, but doing unpaid work, her husband needed to pay her, right? Love it. They set up their own arrangement where his money went into her bank account for her mothering work. And I was like, well, yeah, of course everyone should do that. And is this nearly a decade ago if she had kids at a similar age to you, I'm going to assume? Uh, so... She is a decade ago when it first started. Yeah. That's very impressive. He had no guilt about the epidural. No guilt. I mean, she breastfed, but no guilt when she supplemented with formula. No guilt about the childcare. And she just didn't take it on. Do you think that's the way she was brought up? Yeah. Or what, where do you think that comes from? I do. She, her parents instilled in her the power perspective that we were talking about earlier. And, you know, these on, you know, her boys... I think he's in grade three now. No, sorry, grade two. And, you know, so similar ages, Ivy, my youngest. And, you know, you don't, you look at them and you go, you can't separate, you know, oh, she had a mother who felt shit about herself and, you know, worried about whether she'd give apple or pumpkin, you know. <laughs> and the other one who set motherhood up to work for herself. Like, yeah, you can't tell, but yet. But we place so much value on it. Do motherhood the hard way. And there is no prizes for doing it the hard way. There's no reward that comes later. There's no prizes for, for doing it any bloody way, unfortunately. That's right. <laughs> Unless your kids are really nice to you. I guess that's a good prize sometimes well, when yes. they're really kind back to you. <laughs> but they're more likely to be kind back to you if you have filled your own bucket. That is so true. So then Ivy does enter the world. What's your motherhood experience like in those early days? I 
choose to enjoy it. And I did not enjoy the first, certainly the first year of Violet, and I really regret that. So yeah, I chose to set things up in a way that I could enjoy the wonder of it. You know, time, it goes so quickly, even though the days feel long, the weeks are fast. And so I put things in place, the time that I needed, the work that I needed, some prioritizing friends that I needed so that I could be a fully functioning person and not just a mother. And how long did you take off paid work this time around? I think three months. That was it. I mean, I'm extremely lucky because my job's very flexible. And so I didn't actually have to physically go somewhere. Um, But yeah, I did start working again when Ivy was three months. I started writing my column again. And how did you find that as a mother of two, as someone who's heading in that direction, similar, I guess, lifestyle in that my work's quite flexible and it's all freelance? How did you find going from one to two from a career or working point of view? Well, for me, it was easier because I I just accepted the reality that I needed help. So I actually did less. Yeah. and Do less. That's some of my friend's favorite saying is do less. (laughs) But also get people to help you. We are the first generation in history where we feel like we need to do motherhood alone and that good motherhood is doing everything yourself. Never before has this happened. We've always had a village. And in my case, I don't have a family around. So my village, I have to pay for it. But I still need that village. And, you know, people say, oh, they're too young to have a babysitter. And it's like, well, I introduced that babysitter when she was a baby. Like she could have been grandma, right? Exactly. She could have been auntie. She could have been anyone. So I picked a really consistent person who started off a couple of hours a week and then we dragged it out to two days a week. And it was still that same person, the same bond. So there are ways around this. If first of all, we just have to let go of this idea that we have to suffer in order to be, and be totally self-sacrificing in order to be good mothers. Yeah. And so I know you've written a lot of books, but the two that obviously are quite pertinent to my stage of life, uh, raising girls who like themselves and bringing up boys who like themselves. Can you tell us a bit about, I mean, it's pretty obvious what was inspiring these ideas, but tell us about when you first actually start writing Raising Girls Who Like Themselves. Okay. So how this happened was, as I said, Chris and I were doing our own research because we wanted to work out how we could parent in a way that our girls would believe in themselves and feel good enough. And we got totally into it and we talked a lot about it. And one day we were at a party and one of our friends, was it Bounce, a children's birthday party, and one of our friends said, I don't have time to read all of that. Can you just tell me what I have to do? And we thought, yeah, we can. We can. The other thing that really bothered me about a, a lot of the parenting books that I was reading was that they were totally unachievable. You would read the books and just feel bad because you couldn't possibly do everything that these people said you needed to do in order to be a good parent. So what we wanted to do was every single thing that we recommend in our book is evidence-based. We don't make anything up. There's no I reckons in there at all. It is all evidence-based, but we have also done it in our own family. And we both work. We have no family support. Our family is just as complicated as everyone else's. But what we found out, and this is the really good news, is that 
you can make massive changes in the way that you parent and the outcomes of your parenting with tiny everyday parenting tweaks. And we've heard stories because Raising Girls came out in 2021. So we've got years now, two years of stories of kids who, some kids, you know, not wanting to go to school, saying that they don't want to live anymore, having friendship problems, academic problems, all in the same child. And then just by teaching them the power perspective, a new way to think that they get to decide how they respond to the events in their lives, it has totally transformed their event, their, their approach to life. I heard from a mother the other day whose child would not engage in tests. She'd sit there and just would not pick up a pencil because she had a fear of failure and the mother worked through the strategies in our book. And now she's actually doing extension work by choice. And so these aren't huge interventions. You don't have to spend a lot of money. You don't have to go to big workshops or hours and hours of work. It's little everyday parenting tweaks that just teach your child to think in a way that works for them. I heard in an interview that you said gender norms run so deep that even if we find out the gender of our baby in our tummy, we start speaking to them differently. Can you please expand on that? That is wild. I know. And we get a lot of criticism for writing two books. So people, because we've got a girl book and a boy book. And I mean, that happened because we were the parents of girls. So we focused on girls and then we were asked to write boys. But even so, the research shows that even if you intend to parent gender neutrally, you don't. So if you know you've got a baby girl in your tummy, you will use softer language, you'll sing more, dads will whistle more and more emotive language than you will with a boy. From the moment the boy takes his first breath, it'll be, oh, look at the lungs on him. From the girl, it's like, oh, she's got a lot to say at the moment. Right? The nurses That's in so the hospital true. do that. And there's some really interesting studies. There was one done on the at the BBC where they got a girl baby and a boy baby and they dressed them in opposite genders. So they dressed boy baby as a girl and girl baby as a boy. And they brought in people who swore that they parent gender neutrally and then just let them play. And with the girl who was dressed up with a boy, there was blocks and there was trucks and there was active language with the boy who was dressed as a girl there was nurturing there was dolls there was come on sweetie i saw something on linkedin about this that a little boy will go oh you're so fast you're so strong and a little girl will go oh look how beautiful your dress looks and i found that so fascinating and so true and it wasn't i don't think i was even a parent at the time but i was so aware then of how i talked to my nieces how do we acknowledge that unfortunately society hasn't moved far enough for these gender norms not to be in the equation while also trying to break them down. So how, I guess what I'm saying is how do we parent in a way that acknowledges these differences that we have, have created in society but also try and parent them with an even keel depending on whether they're a boy or a girl? Okay, so the first thing I want to say is yes, the world should be different. All right. There is no question that we need to tackle the systemic and institutional problems and inequalities in the world. And so often when I talk about raising girls, people go, oh, yeah, but the, what about the boys? And the boys need to behave differently. And like, yes, often they do, but I don't have a hundred years to wait. 
Yes. So the reality is our girls and our boys are growing up right now. So we need to be realistic and we need to raise them to thrive in a world as it is because we cannot change it fast enough for them. Yeah, it's all well and good to have this utopia of what we want the world to go towards, but we do have to deal with the facts right now. That's right. And so our approach is really practical. This is what the world's like. These are the strategies our kids need to deal with that and to thrive despite the inequalities. And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't keep fighting. I've been fighting, you know, for 10 years through my column to dismantle these inequalities, but, you know, I haven't actually ticked that off my list yet. (laughs) When I was reading through your book, something else that I've noticed a correlation with is that often we'll make workplaces better for mums and we act like mums need flexibility. And it sort of dawned on me recently, well, if dads had flexibility, mums therefore have more flexibility because it's not all on the mum. I want mums to have flexibility, don't get me wrong, but if dad can leave at three o'clock and that be socially acceptable, then that actually helps the mum too because maybe that day she can just be in the office till when she needs as opposed to rushing around. And I guess I've found now a correlation in that we need to work on young girls to love themselves, but we need to teach boys about that as well in order for them to help women and to be conscious of how to support women. I think the world, unfortunately, let's be real, it's been more about how women support men. What did you find in writing bringing up boys who like themselves in the context of how they treat and engage with girls. Mm -hmm. Boys aren't born not being nurturing. Little boys are just as nurturing as little girls. Little boys want to help just as much as little girls. We teach them not to. And we teach them in our homes. So the research shows that, that even in homes that consider themselves to be progressive, the daughter does more domestic work than the son. And the son gets paid. I've read a stat about the son gets paid more pocket money for what's perceived as like tougher, manlier jobs. That's right. So we teach them to, we teach them that nurturing is not valued. One boy actually said to me that kindness was for chicks and losers. So we teach boys not to be kind and not to help. And that is a disaster. It's a disaster for boys because the happiest people, the people with the best well-being, the best mental health actually have really good connections into the community and they help other people. So when we raise our boys to be individualists, to be the Lone Ranger, we are actually robbing them of the, the joy in life. But yet we do that as a society. And so something that we talk about in our book, bringing up boys who to who like themselves, is that you need to very deliberately make a connection for your boy between helping someone and getting a good feeling. Because girls will maintain doing that. They will help people because it's modelled all around them. Boys, the modelling is the opposite. So you need to actually help them learn that when they are kind, when they help someone, it feels good. So they keep doing it. it you're just making me realise as well how culturally ingrained this is because my husband's great, but say we're at a family dinner, I think now it's finally changing, but you'll often see the mums, the daughters in the kitchen 
and the dad sitting at the table. And that matters for the kids because then that's what they're seeing. And how many dads are volunteering at schools? I mean, occasionally you might see one flipping a sausage, but the mums were up all night chopping the salads, right? And doing all the planning. And you look at, I mean, Father's Day just kills me. You know, Mother's Day, the mothers arrange it. Father's Day, the mothers arrange it. You know, it's like, what lessons are we teaching boys that they should expect this, that this kind of work and community work and care and nurturing is not valued? That's so interesting. It's so interesting. It's made me think even more about the actions that we start now and what impact that will have on my son. Something else that I heard you say was that a girl will receive more compliments on her appearance than anything else combined. How do we take more note of that? Because again, I would say that I'm one of those people that tries not to approach parenting with genders in mind too much, but I'm sure that I do more than that I save for the exact reasons that we're speaking about. What are those little tweaks and little changes that we can make? Okay. The first thing we need to do is be aware that we're doing it because most people don't know. And the thing is, little girls are gorgeous. When you see a little girl, she is gorgeous and you actually want to say it, right? But we need to think about the consequence of that. And the consequence is if you are continually focused on a girl's appearance, on her beauty, she will naturally grow up believing it is the most important thing about her, right? Then she will go into a world where she will not be beautiful enough because in our society, no woman is ever beautiful enough. We interviewed two supermodels who do not feel beautiful enough, right? Because it is not possible. So we are setting our girls up to fail at the thing that we have taught them everyone cares about, right? So it is essential that our girls build their identity on things that they can control. Beauty is an external measure. It's something that someone else bestows on you and it's something that someone else takes away. They have to build it on their, their own identity on things they control. So, and the way we do that is to stop always focusing on their beauty. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't ever tell your daughter that she's beautiful, but just focus on all the other things, on the things that she does and on the things that she thinks and the things that she says. So imagine if she was a boy, <laughs> You know, we do know how to talk to boys without complimenting, you know, their hair or their eyelashes, right? Yeah. And so it's about thinking about that and then preparing ahead of time. So just have a couple in your back pocket. If you see a girl and you don't, and you're about to say, what a pretty dress, comment on something around her, you know, the pop plat, the, the bike that she's on, ask her what she's going to do today, what she had for breakfast, what special dinner she's going to have tonight, ask her what book she's read. Just have a couple of things and open with those things rather than on how she looks. And I think that in parenting, we can have a lot of grand plans of wanting to be the best parents ever, but then life gets in the way. <laughs> things get busy. Maybe both parents work full time but they know that they need to set aside some time to either talk to the other partner or to talk to their kids about certain topics such as this. How do you think really time poor parents approach these conversations or these little tactics in the best way possible? So I think once you're aware of the tactics, it doesn't really take very much time. So what we just said, if you lead with what are you doing today, 
or, you know, that dress looks great for the sandpit rather than that's pretty, it hasn't taken any more time. A technique for the power perspective to teach your child to believe in what they think rather than caring about what other people think is what we call flipping praise. And that takes no more time. So your child is going to come to you about 6,000 times asking for praise. Do you like my dress? Do you like my somersault? Do you like my drawing? Whatever. By freely giving that praise, you are telling your child what I think matters. It matters more than what you think, right? So we're training them to be external. It takes no more time to go, what's your drawing? So I'm really interested in what you think. What do you think about your drawing? So you flip the praise and you ask them what they think. And if they like it, say, that's great because it's your work. So what you think matters the most. If they don't like it, you talk about, well, what do you think you could do differently next time? Now, that doesn't take up any more time. So we do hear from parents that kids don't like it because they've learned to be praise junkies, right? We teach them to be praise junkies. Our job as parents is not to create the perfect childhood where our kids are never upset with us. Our job is to prepare them to be well-functioning, independent adults who like themselves. And part of that is learning to trust their own judgment before other people's. So if your child gets upset with you when you flip praise, I would say keep going. And something that I think becomes really pertinent when you become a parent is that everything that happens in the four walls of your home isn't the entire context within which your child lives their life. When it comes to grandparents who perhaps grew up with a totally different mindset, when it comes to people at daycare who perhaps are, I mean, without being rude, maybe more backwards in their approach to gender norms, how do we create a sense of controlling the narrative that we want to push on our children without society getting too much in the way? Okay, as parents, the good news is we get in first right? We do get to lay that foundation first and we get to create the rules of our home. What is tricky is grandparents because grandparents blur that line. And the research shows that grandparents are extremely influential in body image. One body image psychologist that I interviewed said that in almost every case of an eating disorder, there is a grandparent story in there. Because grandparents are really powerful and influential in families, And so if you've got a grandparent who is continually monitoring what your child is eating, talking about their weight, their beauty, it matters. It really matters. And it is also really difficult to stop it. You know, it's very difficult to have that conversation with your mom. It's even more difficult to have it with your mother-in-law. But I would say our children need us to be brave and you need to have that conversation. And we've had that. We've had it with my mom. It didn't go well. She doesn't believe me because she says, well, complimenting someone on their weight or their weight loss is such a, it's the highest form of compliment. No, not understanding that, that what we're doing is teaching our girls that it's okay to police bodies and judge bodies. And I've had to say to my mum, you don't have to agree with me. I'm just asking you to respect my wishes. And that was real. I'm not going to pretend that that was an easy conversation. It's not. But a poor body image can ruin every single aspect of your daughter's life. It can influence her self-esteem, her future partner choices, her finances, her physical and mental well-being. Like, this is a very serious issue and our girls need us 
to champion it. They need, they have the right to grow up without body policing. And that means we often have to have those difficult conversations with grandparents. But the good news is, is that grandparents can be really protective as well. So if you can enlist grandparents to help build your children's body image, girls and boys, then that is really powerful. Get them on your team. And, and what I mean by that is get them to spend time with your child, delight in your child, in doing things that have nothing to do with how they look. They want to be with your child because they're fun and they're creative and they're funny and they're energetic. And that is a really protective factor for body image and also the prevention of eating disorders. So you've been navigating paid work alongside mothering for 14 years now. What have been the greatest joys of being able to do both and what have been some of the challenges? The greatest joy is I learn from my children. You get such a perspective when you're around someone who's totally in the moment and demands you to be present and is also totally honest as well. Um, and so that was a real lesson for me too, the honesty of a child and learning the difference between something that is just as factual and something that is overlaid with judgment and opinion. And so when you can separate those two things, it can be quite freeing as well. The struggle is just time and feeling like you're pulled in all directions and you can't do everything. You are going to drop the ball often and there's personal development in that too and learning that that is okay like the research is very clear good enough parents is enough yes and what our kids need from us is actually less rather than more in a lot of cases right our generation does overparent um so we can step back but the gift that we can give our children and it doesn't matter how much time how much money you have is to see them, accept them, and love them for who they are in this moment. That they don't have to get a mark, lose weight, win a game, impress someone to be good enough. We let them know that they are inherently worthy. They are already good enough. And that is actually easier said than done, particularly if your child is varies different wildly from what you thought they were going to be because we all have an image of how our kids are going to be and then they pop out and they have no respect for that image at all and if your child is different then that can be hard there can be a process of grieving but we need to do that we need to get through it because every child needs someone who is totally wild about them about who they actually are not about who we think they should be that is a beautiful sentiment to end with. Casey, if people want to find your many books online or in store, I'm assuming they're, store, they're sold very broadly, very widely, where can they go? Come to RaisingGirlsWhoLikeThemselves.com. If you would like the boy version, um, there's a boy button on the top. We've also got some free resources on our website too about body image and friendship skills as well. Thank you so much for writing these brilliant books and for sharing your story today. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Ready or Not. If you liked the show, please tell your friends, subscribe or write a review. 
You can also find us on Instagram at readyornot.pod. That's it for today. We'll see you next time.